Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today on what would have been Iris Murdoch's 104th birthday, we're producing a special episode to celebrate the 50th anniversary of what some people consider Iris Murdoch's finest novel, The Black Prince. And I'm delighted to be joined by one of my regular contributors and an absolute favourite on the podcast, Anne Rowe. Hello, Anne. Hello, Myers. Thank you so much for coming back on. Anne is visiting professor at the Iris Murdoch Research Centre, of course, and is also um, Emeritus Research Fellow at um, the University of Kingston, where she uh, set up the Iris Murdoch Research Centre and also the uh, Iris Murdoch Archives uh, many years ago. And I think I would probably agree that this is, if not the finest, certainly one of the finest. A lot of people, of course, talk about the Sea the Sea, which, as we know, won the Booker. Um, but also people have, you know, Under the Net or The Bell Down as, as one of their favourites too. Do you think that this, that The Black Prince might be really at the top of the tree? Oh, um, the top of the tree for me is usually the book I'm reading at the right. time, uh, which most recently uh, was the book in the Brotherhood, which I really think is, is one of the best. I think The Black Prince um, is one of the finest. It's definitely up there. Uh, possibly even, as many people say, one of the finest novels written in the 20th century. Um, at its heart, of course, it has a huge emotional pull. Mm. It's a love story. And I think that draws in your general reader as well as, as Murdoch scholars. But she was performing, I think, at this time. This is 1973, right at the height of her intellectual powers. And she's playing with some very sophisticated, moral, theoretical and philosophical perspectives in this novel in a much more coherent way and a, and a much more obvious way than she's doing in any others uh, of the novels. So it's for me, um, it was such a, an, a good teaching tool in all the years when I was teaching at Kingston. Um, you could fit this novel into almost any undergraduate course that you were teaching. So if you were teaching literary theory, you could bring in her quarrel with Derrida that really is at the heart of the novel. It's a London novel, so you could teach it on literary London courses. I taught it on the MA in creative writing about what defines great art, the great debate at the, in the centre mm. of this novel between two writers about what makes good art. So to teach creative writing, um, in fact, in the last few years, uh, I've been invited by Sophie Hanna, the crime writer, down to Cambridge, where she does uh, an MA in creative writing. And I've been talking about The Black Prince as a crime novel. So there's all that. You could teach it on a women's writing because feminist issues come in with this plethora of strange female characters that come into the novel. And, of course, literature in the visual arts, because one of the central symbols in the novel is Titian's last great painting, that The Flaying of Marcius. So it's a real intellectual ragbag of a novel. You can pick out any of these themes and make wide ranging, coherent arguments that, that go down well in, in a teaching environment. All these aspects, we've talked about Iris Murdoch's novels before about being shapeshifters. Mm. Think in certain senses in terms of its theoretical context that it would be very rooted in the mid 20th century. But it's another one of those shapeshifters. You can pull it out of context and it adapts itself to the discussions on the nature and function of art in society, the relationship between life and art. How can art rep represent human experience? 
What does it mean to truly love another human being? So all these issues, not only relevant to Murdoch scholarship, but relevant to readers, I think. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it's, a, it's a readable book, um, you know, even though it's punctuated by these long sections of meditations on art, um, it's gripping. It's a really uh, narratively gripping novel. Yeah. But of course, that's only half the story. Um, on the other hand, it is one of the most slippery and paradoxical of all the novels. It functions in, as a sort of shapeshifter in a much more contradictory way. Um, so there's a huge amount of narrative instability. And I think that um, or there are so many different truths to take away and mull over that every time I read this novel and I've written about it, I've taught it for so many years and I think I've got that wrong. You know, I've missed <laughs> something. Yeah. There's something here. And I tell you what happened this time. I was just really skim reading this to, for, the, for the podcast. And the devil is in the detail, in the narrative detail. And this is just one quick example. It's to do with Julian. There's an incident near the beginning of the novel, and they all go to the pub. Julian, Arnold, Bradley, Rachel. And they're all drinking in the pub. And it goes into the afternoon. And then they all leave. Now, Julian... Um, uh, sorry, not Julian is not there. Did I say Julian? She's not there. It's aunt, just the, the adults. Yeah. And um, Rachel and Bradley walk home and they start canoodling and they go out onto the balcony. And there's a lovely moment where Rachel is just trying to push the deck chairs together under the opaque glass of the balcony. And she edges it up against uh, Bradley and winds herself around him as two corpses might ineptly greet each other on Resurrection Day. Mm. Now, when they leave and they're walking halfway down the path, they look up and Julian is sitting in the window with that balloon. Now, so many years I've concentrated on the symbolism of that balloon and Julian cutting the string of that balloon and that what, what that might mean. But Rachel delivers a disgusted, ah, there's a real dislike between mother and daughter revealed in that moment. And Bradley feels terribly guilty when he sees Julian having kissed the mother while the child was actually in the house. Now, the opaque ceiling of that terrace wouldn't conceal them if it was lighter inside than outside. If Julian saw or heard that, this could have a completely new dimension to the whole narrative and the meaning. Relationship between mother and daughter were never good. What if Julian hated her mother enough to orchestrate that next meeting with Bradley when she accidentally bumps into him as he's walking around the corner from the house? Ah, yes. Now then, if Bradley, if Julian orchestrates that relationship to spite her mother, this destabilizes, I mean, everything I probably said or thought uh, about the way that this um, plan, this this plot in the novel actually works itself out and indeed in its denouement at the end. So, um, you know, talk about it being a shapeshifter. I mean, every time you read it, you bring something out of it that you haven't seen before, which is why it, it continually um, generates debate um, I would have to go away and think about that and think about that, how that affects uh, my argument about the end of the novel and, and how it you know, pans out. Uh, and the other thing I noticed about it this time, how funny it is. 
it's ridiculously funny. I think when you're reading novels to teach them, you are concentrating on themes and issues and serious uh, debates that you're going to talk about. And I thought, well, I could begin to see this potential as a film. I've always thought this would make a dreadful film because there's too much theory, too, mm. too many long sections, you know. Um, of course, Josephine Hart tried this on the stage in, in the 1980s and it, it failed miserably. And I think she tried to focus on the comedy of it. But um, either way, you know, the book has changed, I think. Just going back to it now and thinking about it again, um, a real quintessential shapeshifter. It, it'll deliver whatever you want um, to find as the same, the same time as proving you wrong about sure. it. And it all yeah. coheres together as well, doesn't it? The, these move, these different moving parts that you talked about earlier, and how it can be uh, used in and read in different in, in very different ways. It all, it all still kind of, you know, the, the parts make a, a, a beautiful whole. I think. What is it? Beautifully, beautifully structured. Good. Yeah. Um, at the and, same time as being a complete paradox. And know. so different to Murdoch's previous novels as well, isn't it? I think that is it's a, an isolated choice. I mean, I think this is uh, very much a novel where she's really thinking about uh, where she where she is in in her writing career. Fascinating, Anne. So, could you say a little bit of something about the background to the writing of the novel? Well, it was incredibly fast. Um, it's the speed she wrote this is so impressive when you consider what was going on in our life at the time. So it was published in 1973 mm -hmm. after an accidental man. She finished writing that in April 1971 and according to Purton began writing the first draft of The Black Prince in May 1971. Now this is interesting. In April she records the need to live alone with her demons and on June the 27th she says that her nightmares had found its way into the first draft of the novel. Now that's fascinating. Completed the first draft then in September 1971, having filled 14 notebooks. Um, and then she begins the final draft, which she finishes in December. Now, that's nine months in the making. And mm. she had travelled to Normandy. She'd been to northern Italy. She'd been to Rome. Then she came home. And then she went to Dorset in the autumn. Um, she was also, uh, these were the years when she was involved with staging her drama. Remember that in the 1968s, I think, she took a year off to write drama. Yeah. So The Servants in the Snow was set on the stage at Greenwich in 1970, October. The Three Arrows in Cambridge in October 1971. Um, how on earth she was compartmentalising her life to find the time to write a, a book of this complexity in that length of time, I think is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I think these must have been ideas that were mulling around in her mind for a long time. Sure, yeah. And of course, it, not just the, the writing of, of the novel, but also pre presumably thinking about, you know, philosophical ideas that would later come into um, Fire in the Sun a little bit later on, but also, of course, her letter writing. And I wonder, did the letters of this time give any ideas of what uh, what might have informed the narrative complexity or ideas that you might have put, put into friends in, in private correspondence regarding the novel? I did think actually about having a, having a look at the letters. Um, they do give a few clues um, to the preoccupations. Um, the letters to George Kreisel, which were so important and, and were made a great deal of when the letters were published. This is where she said she's talking about her sexuality. Now, I think this is 
very very relevant to the black prince and she says i'm a male homosexual in female guide mm. there are many critics who think that bradley pearson is you know a, a sort of iris murdoch herself talking about her own gender identity um Chrysler, of course, was professor of logic at Stanford. They have lots of conversations. And if anybody's interested, uh, if you look at pages about 392, 394, there's a very, very long detailed letter to Chrysler about the nature of art. This is in and Living on Paper, of course, which you... Uh, oh, sorry, yes, is, Living yes. on Paper. Yeah. <laughs> One should not sacrifice truth to art, she tells him. Artists have definite formal obligations of a special sort. She accuses him of attacking sacred values in a cool and casual way. She's worried um, that she, he finds certain kinds of descriptions, and I think he's having a dig at her novels here, oh. of, of the interior person. He says this is frivolous and that his philosophy will not allow that the interior person in which he is interesting can exist or can be described at all. So I think the Black Prince is a response uh, to this, this criticism, and possibly her most sustained attempt at describing what it means to be human, the interior life of one character. Okay. So um, other than that, and, and if anybody's you know, interested in this, that, that letter to Chrysler would be an enormous help. Um, but she was careful to sustain a lot of her personal friendships at this time. There's letters around this time to Philippa Foote, David Hicks, Bridget Boat, Bridget Brophy, and probably most significant in relation to the Black Prince, I think, to David Morgan, yeah, her former student. His colourful love life uh, led her to declare to him, this is in early 1972, that she disapproves of promiscuity and that to be oneself, to be free, to be whole, is partly a matter of escape from obsession, neurosis, fear and compulsions. So I think this detailed inner life of Bradley Pearson is also a working through of a way of how you get yourself out of these obsessions um, that, that most of her characters have at some point. They do, um, especially her first person male narrators and whether they are able to um, have any form of transcendence towards the end of the novel, as we know. So, yeah. and, and clearly the Brad, Bradley is, is is split in in his own mind. And the, the book, of course, is split. We've got, you know, Loxius as the editor. We've got, of course, Murdoch standing outside the, the novel as well. But the, the, of course, the, the major relationship that everybody kind of con considers is the relationship between Arnold Baffin and Bradley Pearson um, in the novel. And whether it's a kind of a, a split in Murdoch's mind, how they relate to Murdoch herself as a writer, whether it's whether there's anything of, of Iris in either of them. Do you think that there's do you think that reading is a little bit naive or do you think there's something to it? Is the book covertly about Iris herself? I think it's not naive reading. I think it's absolutely crucial, absolutely central okay. to, to understanding uh, the book. That's what it is. This is the one novel where she relinquishes um, herself to her own writing. It is a book that's covertly about herself. It's a book I mentioned earlier. At this point, she was trying to make this decision. She 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 didn't want to be a couldn't be a dramatist. Her plays were failing. She didn't think she was a good enough philosopher. She kept comparing herself in the letters to Philippa Foote. She knew she wasn't going to do that. So she decides if I'm going to be a writer, if this is where I'm going, mm. I'm going to be the best kind of writer that I can be. 
Uh, and it's the book in which she breaks her cardinal rule not to write herself into her art. So both these characters, Arnold Baffin and Bradley Pearson, are aspects of Murdoch's personality, not just her writing personality, but the person that she was as well, her emotional self. She she makes this quite plain, I think, in the novel. It's quite overt uh, when Arnold says to Bradley that he seemed like an emanation of myself, a strayed and alien alter ego. So Arnold is the writer Murdoch's reading public, I think, would have recognised from the novel. He's the book a year man who gets his work out with little or no editing. And Murdoch famously would not have <laughs> yeah. books to be edited. But it's a self-defence in a way. You know, um, Bradley says, if I, Arnold says, if I wrote less, I would not write better. And he says there simply would be less of what there is. Now, there's something, and I think this is the most interesting point, that Bradley finds deeply offensive about the work that Arnold produces. I think there's an element of self-castigation on Murdoch's part here. Um, Arnold's novels are too curious, they're too prurient, and they take too much from life. Um, this is a famous description that Julian gives of the novels. He lives in a sort of rosy haze with Jesus and Mary and Buddha and Shiva and the Fisher King, all chasing around and round dressed up as people in Chelsea. Now, that's really funny and amusing, but it's very cutting also. Bradley's review of Arnold's latest book is, is Murdoch's self-torture, I think. Um, she's castigating herself. And, and then both defending herself and making clear that this kind of criticism of Arnold's work is unfair. Uh, and I wonder if these were the nightmares that she talks about in her journal that were troubling her at the time. Mm. She'd be terribly insecure about her own writing. There are endless, endless uh, letters where she to her publisher where she said, well, of course, you may not think this is any good. And in her journal, she says, this is no good. This book is no good. So there's this constant sort of state of self-flagellation in her life. And I think these two characters and the debates between them is, is her acknowledging that and owning up to it, if you like. Um, it, this contest between the two writers, I think this may say something pertinent to Murdoch's personal psychology of the time. Um, the creative artist is flaying the idealist for his sterility and then the idealist flays the second best for his lack of perfection. Ah, okay, yeah. So <laughs> she's writing this book, I think, to clear the decks, so to speak, and to get it clear in her head where she's aiming to go. So in this sense, and, and one of the most interesting points, I think, about this debate between these two writers, in a symbolic sense, Bradley has to kill Arnold Blaffin. And I think this is what complicates this dialogue uh, between about who killed Arnold Baffin. Yes, it was Bradley in a sense. He has to kill off all Bra uh, Arnold in order to write this great book, this great work of art that he always wanted to write. If I had killed him, he says, there would have been a certain beauty in it. And to an ironical man, that what could be prettier than to have the aesthetic, satis aesthetic satisfaction of having committed murder without having to commit it. So one of the reasons that Bradley will not condemn Rachel at the end is because she has been the agent in his quest to be a great writer. Arnold has to be killed off mm. so Bradley can write his great book. And, and that word, um, to an ironical man, and I think that word is one of the keys to reading this book. 
Um, the reference to irony. There are four sections full of chunks of literary theory in the book, and there's detailed, serious discussions between Arnold and Bradley about what constitutes good art. And one observation made by Bradley is, I think, crucial and gives the key to how the book should be read. He talks about irony, the dangerous and necessary tool. Sometimes the writer has to lie to point to the truth. So you've got to stay alert in this narrative to tell when the narrator is telling the truth or being ironic and telling a lie to lead us to the truth. So it's, it's hugely confusing. And this confusion led Murdoch to say in interview, the attentive reader should know when the narrator is telling the truth and when he's lying. But this is difficult because the distinctions are made not through what is said, but through how it how it's said. You have to listen to the cadences, the lyricism and the poetry. And it's only through that, she says, that you can get to the truth of what the narrator is saying. You don't read to the words, you respond to the poetry. Um, and I think that's what makes the book so complicated, so difficult and so fascinating. Mm. You have to be on your toes. You do, and you, yeah. And you can't you can't get lulled uh, when Bradley is at his most loquacious and when he's at his most poetic, because that could be also when he's leading us to the truth and when he's leading us up to the, the garden path. And I think that's one of the reasons why the book, you can read it again and again, and you can come away with different ideas about it. It's what keeps the book, the narrative alive, I think. And it, I, I guess it reflects on this this idea about what's at, what is in and what's outside the text as well. That kind of post-structuralist idea that yeah. she's dealing yeah. with in her non-fictional writing and her, and her thoughts about where what the, the position of the author and this kind of the, the authorial irony of uh, yeah. of dealing with this form of narrative and also having Loxius in the middle as this editor. Whenever I've I've taught it in the past, I've always said to to students, well, always keep Loxius in mind if he's editing it. What's in and what's out. And it's mm -hmm. this idea about what Murdoch is putting in and out as well, isn't there? Yeah. And what she's reflecting on. I think there's something, obviously, you know, we talk we talk about, you know, Murdoch's um, sort of mental process, mental state. Of course, we know that throughout her life, she suffered from bouts of depression as well, particularly, as you said, regarding the novel um, and the development of, of her novels and, and, and feeling unsure, uncertain about how good they were. And of course, feeling that she is in competition with others. Obviously, she didn't, she says she didn't read so many contemporaries, but... She had a, um, a a long friendship and and sort of mentorship with A.S. Byatt, and obviously Byatt is developing as a novelist at the same time. So maybe there's there's so much going on, isn't there? There, um, is, there is, and of course Bridget Brophy as well. Yeah, and of course. She had been was not stung. keen on Murdoch's writing. She right. had been stung by that awful letter yeah. that Brophy had had written to her. So there's a real sense, I think, you know, there's a sense of self justification in this novel. Uh, she's saying, you know, no, I am a, a good writer. I, yeah. I can do it. And, and uh, talking about what you're saying about this linking between what is within and without the text. I mean, we haven't got time to go into this now, but there's a great debate with Derrida and deconstructionism running right the way through the novel um, that we haven't got time to talk about. Yeah, if, 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 you, if you like with so many things in, in Murdoch, isn't it? If you're reading it just for the, the good yarn, then you can. But if you know a little bit about post-structuralism, yeah. And Murdoch's kind of personal views on that that you can you can see it written throughout. But it's the same, I guess, with the Shakespearean element, isn't there? Um, because obviously this is the Black Prince. It is in dialogue with Hamlet. 
Um, how's that working, particularly for um, listeners who um, perhaps know a little bit about Hamlet but haven't made those connections? Could you draw draw some of those out for us? Well, yeah, I mean, I I, I would agree in the same way that Hamlet is the only place uh, play where Shakespeare reveals himself as a man and an artist. So the Black Prince is the only novel. Uh, where Murdoch overtly reveals herself in her fictional work. So while Hamlet is Shakespeare, this dialogue that I've just talked about between Bradley Pierce and Arlen and Arnold Baffin is a composite picture of Murdoch. So absolutely. Now, Peter Conradi talks about this in The Saint and the Artist. He says something a bit more complex. He says both Hamlet and the Black Prince require a Freudian reading okay. um, because the books and intentionally reveal not only what kind of writers their author aspired to be, but they also reveal the unconscious desires of both their authors. So it's it's quite complicated. So what he's suggesting there is in these works, their authors both consciously and unconsciously reveal more about themselves than in any other work. There's that lovely phrase um, in, in The Black Prince, the gods flayed victims dancing the dance of creation. Now, the central episode in The Black Prince, where Hamlet is most overtly alluded to, of course, is when Bradley finally makes love to Julian at Petara. The only time he's capable of consummating the relationship is when she is dressed as Hamlet. Mm -hmm. This has vexed more students in seminars than I would care to talk about. Um, it is, it's an uncomfortable scene. And a lot of students found this uncomfortable, which is often and would often refer to it as the rape scene. Yeah. Um, this is where Bradley is is incredibly sexually aroused because Julian is dressed up as Hamlet because she played Hamlet in the school play and brings her costume with them. Because this is a, a romantic allusion to the fact that it was their discussions about Hamlet that brought them together in the first place. Yeah. So. What you know? What what's going on? I mean, clearly, Murdoch's symbolism is exploring how far Bradley's or any writer's cerebral ideas about art are enough. How far can a great writer keep their hands clean? If you are a great light, great writer, you have to write about dark aspects of human nature. So, Hamlet hates his father. He has a sexual desire for his mother. His ill treatment of Ophelia, the woman he loves, results in her death. So those are the things through the character of Hamlet, you could argue, Shakespeare is confronting about himself. So Bradley symbolically has to acknowledge the mess and the muddle of his own psyche and his own humanity in order to be able to be the great writer he wants to be. The reason that Bradley has spent all these years never been able to produce his great novels because he has never been able to confront that capacity for evil or sexual, deep sexual desire within himself. So, you know, in a nutshell, I suppose what I'm suggesting is that she's exploring whether any writer um, can authentically write about depravity or evil if they've never experienced it. Uh, I was at the o Lohengrin at the opera the other week. It's the same thing that Wagner's dealing with at the, right at the centre of that work of art. Um, the problem with this book is that moral boundaries are really very blurred. I mean, after they've made love, Julian asks Bradley, is it like this in inspiration when you write? Yes, says Bradley. Now empowered, I would be able to write. 
So only this deeply problematic um, ethical act has been the vehicle for the great work of art. Um, I remember Peter Conradi in almost 40 years ago in a seminar, summing this up when we were all trying to make sense of it. And he says, the way down is the way up. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it's a painful acknowledgement, I think, that, uh, you know, Murdoch, I mean, a lot of her letters display a very prurient interest in the lives of some of her friends. And uh, going into that dark side of human nature can be dangerous. Mm. It can be unethical and it can be psychologically dangerous for writers themselves. I was just finishing reading the ending of Anna Karenina, uh, where um, Anna is is contemplating suicide. It's terrible and it's upsetting and, and it's it's quite awful. Um, so these, I think, are the ideas that Hamlet, this, this dialogue with Hamlet are, are playing with. And of course, she's also perhaps writing out what she's experienced in her own life with with older males. Um, Ooh, yeah, Canetti. I mean, with with Canetti and, and and perhaps Franklin and, and maybe others. Yeah. Um, so the, I'm not saying that she's writing out her trauma here, but there's certainly some things we can see in her biography and the letters so, and perhaps the, the journals as well. Now that we have all these in the last 15, 20 years, it's perhaps easier yeah. to make, to, 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 to have a, a various readings of this novel. Yeah, uh, it's easier to make connections, Miles. And I, you know, I keep yeah. going back to that that little note that um, in her journals that her her nightmares are certainly getting into this book. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, no, you, you, you can feel that here, I think. Yeah. Um, and of course, one one of the one of the questions that that students often have is this like idea of the the innocence or the whether it's the innocence or the manipulation of Julian and whether yeah. and, and how much innocence or guilt Julian has. Of course, we can talk about the postscripts later on. But she's really at the the, the center of the story ever since um, really that uh, the that Bradley buys her the boots. Um, Murdoch's novel, of course, is entitled The Black Prince, but Bradley entitles his novel within the novel, as we know, The Black Prince, A Celebration of Love. And he says it's a simple love story. Um, and of course, towards the end, we get this kind of um, um, reconfiguration of what he thinks of as love. So mm. do you think that readers really can believe in Bradley's love for Julian or is it really pure erotic fantasy? Or, or should we hold both of them at the same time in, in kind of paradox or conflict, if you like? <laughs> All those things. I All the things, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I do believe that we we should understand his feelings for Junior, Julian as genuine. It is a love, a simple love story in that sense. Uh, she said often, if she was asked in interview, you know, what what's your great topic? What do you like about? She would say, love. Love mm. is my topic. Love in this sense, uh, the complete annihilation of the ego the unselfing that occurs when you truly love another person. And, and not only that, but the clarity of vision, when you see a person as they really are and not as you would have them in your imagination, that moment where your own ego is cracked and, and, and they, th those people, those per that person will emerge as who they are and you love them anyway. Um, now, what she says about this is that she said, she felt that no one in, in literature had ever truthfully represented in art what this experience was really like. This experience of losing oneself, she says, totally in the consciousness of another person, <clears throat> or what we might call falling catastrophically in love. 
So I think that Bradley's love for Julian is without question an attempt at describing what this absolute love was like. I think what we have to do to prove my point uh, is to turn to the opening of part two. Um, this happens around page 205 in my edition. Bradley has given Julian the tutorial on Hamlet and he is slain. Now you have to make a detailed close reading of this section of the book and it goes on for about 10 pages mm. to appreciate the skill and the methodology of the writing here. You have to read sentence by sentence to witness the vacillation here between what she calls <clears throat> high eros and low eros. High eros is the pull towards truth, love, the pull towards the good, to seeing the world as it is. Low eros is the Freudianid, that pull towards fantasy um, and desire and sex, which comes from the dark part of the soul. So this is the pull between Freud and Plato. Um, the Freudian unconscious wants to transform the world. The, pla the platonic view wants you to see it as it is. So there's, you can track this vacillation through about 10 pages. And this, I think, is one of the most brilliant pieces of writing in Murdoch's entire oeuvre. Um, the question here is, can it ever be achieved? And this is the big question. And, and I think, Miles, we may have slightly differing views. Possibly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> does Bradley really ever love this young woman? Or is it only ever a figment, she only ever a figment of his imagination? And he becomes increasingly uh, deluded as yeah. the book progresses. Um, the test, uh, and I know we've 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 actually um, tried this out before, uh, is on page 382. Uh, and I'm not sure if we've got time to do this, Miles, but this meditation on love, uh, it's in Bradley's, it's fi Bradley's final words in the novel uh, where he meditates on his love for Julian. Now, what readers have to dis dis decide here is this man completely out of his brains, deluded, or is this Murdoch's attempt to define in literature what that experience of being truly in love with another person feels like? Well, I think we've got we've got some time and I'm, yeah. I, I'm you know, I'm in charge. I'm going to read it. <laughs> so why not? So on um, in my edition, this is uh, this is the vintage edition. This is on page uh, bottom of page 392. Obviously, it will vary in other editions. I do not, my darling girl, however passionately and intensely my thought has worked upon your being, really imagine that I invented you. Eternally, you escape my embrace. Art cannot assimilate you nor thought digest you. I do not now know or want to know anything about your life. For me, you have gone into the dark. Yet elsewhere I realise, and I meditate upon this knowledge, that you laugh, you cry, you read books and cook meals and yawn and lie, perhaps in someone's arms. This knowledge too may I never deny, and may I never forget how in the humble, hard, time-ridden reality of my life I loved you. That love remains, Julian, not diminished through changing, a love with a very clear and very faithful memory. It causes me on the whole remarkably little pain. Only sometimes at night, when I think that you live now and are somewhere, I shed tears. Oh, Miles, you did that beautifully. I think. Well, thank come, you. I think you've come over to my side of the argument there. <laughs> um, yes, I, I think that um, Bradley loved the young girl that Julian Baffin was. But, you know, on the point about... Um, 
the tone of that. There's no intruding or authorial voice here. It's only the tone of voice that guides the readers to when Bradley Pearson is telling the truth and, and when he's lying. Uh, so, yes, a simple love story. I think Bradley Pearson did love the young woman Julian Baffin was. And I think, too, that she loved him. Um, there's only one truthful thing that she says in her postscript. The child that I was loved the man that Bradley Pearson was. Um, but, you know, working on the idea of paradox or irony that I mentioned early, um, you ca it can be read. You know, lots of students see this very differently. And some of the students, Miles, when we were with your last uh, MA group, read that very differently. Yeah. Um, you know, so... It's one of the most single important sections of writing, I think, in Murdoch's uh, whole oeuvre that uh, you have to make your mind up. How far art, art itself is under the microscope here. How far can language itself accurately convey the authorial intent? And, and you know, it can be mangled in the mind of the reader and the whole novel loses its philosophical impact. Sure. And I think we talked about this before in other podcasts. We're thinking about the the way in which the novels change as as you as a reader grow older, gain more experience, um, reflect differently on particular parts of um, parts of novels. And I think this is the, that section does as well. I think maybe if you're younger with less experience, you might read it in one way. And if you're older yes. with more, you might read it in a, in a, yes. in a very different way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose my, my feeling about it is, is it love or is it erotic obsession? And um, the scene in Patara makes me think one thing, and maybe reading that section again now makes me think another. So I think you can hold both, both you know, the, both, yeah. both, both the elements um, together. It, it, you know, all her writing is about this idea of paradox, being be able to hold two contradictory views up and to be able to see both as of having value. Sure. And it's also a great novel about middle age as well, I think. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> So perhaps we'll come back to that later on. Um, but you've said um, already about ideas about the um, deep mystification and complexity that underlies the novel. I wonder how far and in what ways does it emerge in a much more straightforward way and more simply um, perhaps there's connections with Murdoch's moral philosophy here. And, and you know, maybe, um, maybe we should have talked about this at the start uh, because there is a way that the moral philosophy comes through m much more purely um, and... and simply uh, than, than everything we've been talking about. You know, for the common reader, the book can certainly work hard in a much more straightforward way. And it does illustrate some of the most fundamental tenets of a moral philosophy. How do we become good? How do we see the world and those we love truthfully as it is? How do we construct them in our imagination? How do we deal with terrible suffering without passing the pain on to others? All these are fundamental questions that she considers in everyday life and, and readers can relate to in the novels. Um, so I think one of my favourite lines from the book encapsulates one of the most serious demands of Murdoch's moral philosophy and how it appears in all the novels in just a few sentences. Um, just for interest, this is on page 125. There are no spare, unrecorded, encapsulated moments where we can behave anyhow and then expect to resume life where we left off. The wicked regard time as discontinuous. The wicked dull their sense of natural causality. The good feel being as a total dense mesh of interconnections. My lightest whim can affect my whole future. Now, the outcome of the failure 
to live up to this standard and just behave selfishly is, of course, what causes suffering yeah. in all the novels. Terrible, wretched suffering, I mean, permeates through The Black Prince. And it's the image of flaying that crops up systematically in the nar narrative to describe this really, really cutting emotional pain of many of the characters. You might not notice it, but the word is there. P characters are being repeatedly flayed when they do something really, really awful and they're punished. They are punished for it by the gods. Bradley reflects that this world is a place of horror um, and must this must affect every serious artist and thinker. So the idea of suffering um, is something she deals with in all the novels. It's part of the substance of her moral philosophy. How do we behave well? How do we become good when we are suffering badly and all we want to do is go out in the world and call, cause mayhem? So what she does in The Black Prince is invite a comparative study of all the various types of suffering experienced by all these different characters and how that suffering impacts on their behaviour. So this ranges from this demonic suffering that she likens to the Greek term arte, where people automatically, if they're suffering, they're going to damn well pass that pain on to others. And then there's a kind of glorified suffering where one attempts to hold pain within the self and not to pass it on. Bradley vacillates wildly between these two. Sometimes he lies prone, sometimes he lies prostrate on the floor, at trying to, he really does try not to pass this pain on. Um, I don't have time to illustrate very many of the allusions to flaying in the novel, but the imagery here is linked to Titian's love uh, of Titian's painting, The Flaying of Marcius. Maybe, Miles, you could put um, uh, that up online if anybody wanted to. <coughs> yeah, sure, there'll be a, a link to that in the um, description box of the podcast. Yeah. Um, when she saw this painting, she didn't see it. She, she talks about it a lot and she was very familiar with it, but she didn't actually see it until 1984 when she visited the Venice exhibition in London. She had a Dora experience in front of this painting. She actually fell on her knees in front of it um, because she saw in it um, something that I think she allows, she gives the experience to Bradley when he describes this kind of epiphany, uh, the rag bag of human consciousness only being unified by the experience of great art or intense love. So just quickly, uh, an outline of what the painting is. It's, it's a Renaissance image of the death of the self, the, the annihilation of, of the mm. ego that's yeah. right at the heart of Murdoch's moral philosophy. Uh, it's taken from the myth of Apollo and Marcius in Ovid's Metamorphoses. Marcius has found the, um, found the flute of Athens and plays wonderful music. So Apollo challenges him to the contest. Apollo wins by trickery and flays Marcius alive for his effrontery. Now, the focus of the painting is the look of ecstasy on the face of Marcius as he undergoes the most excruciating pain. And what we see on Marcius's face, Murdoch says, is that when you lose your egoism in this sort of agony, it's also ecstasy. You understand that one lives and one can live through such things. So, this image is an emblem of this kind of glorified suffering that occasions the complete loss of the ego and where suffering is not understood as a punishment as the gods, but a gift for having loved. I mean, this is the most difficult thing, I think, for human beings to experience when they're suffering badly, 
not to see that suffering if you lose someone you love, not to see it as a punishment, but as joy. Um, this is alluded to very, very briefly, I think, in a fairly honourable defeat when Simon and Axel have a conversation briefly about this painting. Yeah. And Simon says, this is an image of punishment. And Axel, Axel says, no, it's an act of love. It's a deep, symbolic impression of human life with all its complexities. So in the Black Prince, she's she's borrowing this image of flaying to construct a comparative study. So all the characters are suffering. Some suffer selfishly. Some suffer very, very punishingly and pass the pain on in a very, very cruel and victim, vindictive way. Um, I haven't got time, but you could go through every character and make a study here. Physic physically destroyed by suffering is Priscilla. Rachel is morally destroyed. Francis has a real sadomasochistic, self-serving, cynical kind of suffering. Christian is just one of those people. No amount of suffering is going to cause her any kind of anxiety. She just wasn't born to suffer. But one of the less likable characters in the novel. Mm -hmm. um, Arnold, we don't know. Um, Arnold's suffering, I think, turns him to anger, violence, retribution, uh, and Julian. She's most emotionally stripped and artistically corrupted by her suffering. <clears throat> we need to say a bit more about that when we talk about uh, the postscripts. So, but you've got all these varying degrees of suffering and all these characters either being morally ennobled or destroyed by their suffering. And of course, finally, there's there's Bradley. And, you, you know, every reader will come to a different conclusion um, about how far his suffering leads him into being a good person. But we've talked a bit about that. I think there are distinct moments of redemptive suffering. They're not sustained. Some some critics have even said you, we can see Bradley as a Christ figure, suffering, you know, completely for the mm. sake of others. I don't think I'd agree um, with that, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, yeah, more, yeah. There's more generally, there's a lot. I mean, that's just one aspect of the. Moral there's so many, aren't there? I mean, yeah. um, it's littered. I think the. The novels littered with vignettes that deal with common moral dangers. Um, there's a wonderful meditation on jealousy. This is on page 247. Uh, the most dreadful, involuntary of all sins. Uh, that's worth reading. And with reference to the philosophical debate between determinism and freedom that runs through every novel, there's a lovely meditation on page 260, which I read to all A-level students when I give talks in school, it's a meditation on vomiting. Um, Br Bradley has taken Julian to Rosencavalier at Covent Garden, and he says, selection of a place to be sick in is always a matter of personal importance and can add an extra tormenting dimension to the graceless horror of vomiting. Not on the carpet, not on the table, not over your hostess's dress. Uh, philosophically meaning, there are occasions when freedom of choice is irrelevant. So there's a lovely, there's, there's all these serious, uh, big discussions about morality and art. Uh, and then there's all this fun going on uh, underneath as well. There certainly is. I mean, obviously we talked quite a lot of there about, about darkness um, and about suffering. But as you you said at the, the top of the podcast, there was an awful lot of comedy here as well that kind of alleviates some elements of the suffering and perhaps also can point us from low to high eros. Perhaps I think yes. there's more to an awful lot more to be said on that. Um, well, that's an interesting point, Miles, you know, that maybe the comedy there is functioning uh, as, as a kind of directive. 
quite possibly yeah, yeah. yeah. not something that i'd thought of before but maybe it's um maybe, maybe worth uh considering considering later um and of course we are deeply imbued within the the landscape as well aren't we geographically this is a london novel um london's important um the post office tower of course com comes back time and time again um much like you know um big ben or the uh big ben kind of comes back time and time again in, in wolf's mrs dalloway in a, in a sense i think the post office tower fo is uh, a focus of um, attention as well within this novel and maybe of course a, a kind of a, maybe a freudian symbol a, a comedic symbol um we know that murdoch was spending quite a lot of time in london um spending three days a week um there um and we thought about we thought about murdoch in london before but um how successful is this as a london novel or could it be could it be a Birmingham novel or a Glasgow novel? It does it have to be London, do you think? Oh, I think it does. I think, yeah. it, I think actually, um, this is one of the most successful um novels where she's using London landmarks to illustrate the moral psychology. I mean, as you say, in, in other novels, you've got the Peter Pan fountain, you've got yeah. the text, you know. And and all these symbols are you know, if you really, really concentrate on them, they're all working really, really hard to point readers towards the moral psychology. Um, the post office tower is, is the, the, the image that appears in this novel. Um, it fails completely. Bradley never takes any notice of it at all. And readers may not notice it. But I do think that she thinks that possibly, in the same way that this image could act subconsciously on the characters, that they could act on the readers in the same way as well. I think this is one of the best examples of her modus operandi here in terms of how she fuses the landscape and uses the, the landscape as symbolic uh, with the moral psychology. Um, the post office tower is, is really interesting because it, it's more complicated than a lot of the others. It's it's a paradoxical symbol. It's a dual symbol. And it re represents, as you've said, both high eros and low eros. Um, so in relation to Bradley's sex drive, it's a symbol of his bristling, inflated ego, his repressed sexual desire, his hubris, his egoism. But also at the same time, it points to his genuine desire to be a great artist and a truth teller. And it pops up very significantly in places in the novels where if he had noticed it and he had really thought and let it speak to him, it could have changed the events of the whole novel. There's just one example. It's a lovely one. Um, it's when Bradley, I think he's in Rathbone Place and he takes Julian, um, he takes Rachel. He's just been with Julian. He's fallen in love with Julian. He's been canoodling with Rachel. And now he's obsessed with Julian. And this is one of the places in the novel where Rachel comes across as her most human. She's trying, she's been trying to tell Bradley. Uh, they've been to the pub and she says, this can't go on. Um, I cannot be unfaithful to my husband, but promise me that you will always love me and that we will be close to each other and we will be friends. And mm. it's a really moving section of the novel. <laughs> yes, 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 as Bradley, he couldn't care less. He's in love with Julian. He takes her into the stationer, stationer shop and buys her six postcards of the post office tower. I mean, again, it's incredibly funny, but yeah. I think it should nudge readers and to thinking about situations when in a split second, if Bradley at that point had had more moral awareness, Rachel says to him, there is fire in me, Bradley. There is fire, fire, fire. If he could have listened, 
looked at Rachel at that moment in time and thought about what she'd said, the whole tragedy with which this novel ends could have been averted. So th this is a London landmark that stands as a moral symbol right at the centre of the novel. Now she's been criticised in this novel because she's been careless with it. It's discarded. You don't see it again. I think this is the last time in the book. It appears. But I think it's absolutely deliberate. Br Bradley, from this point on, is a lost case. Any kind of moral nudging from his creator or from the world around him is going to fail. He's going deeper and deeper into this kind of fantasy world where he will not emerge until disaster, uh, you know, propels him out of it. So, um, you know, I think it... I think uh, it, it marks a stage in her writing. It's it's a symbol that applies to her as well. She does start to become increasingly self-aware, I think, at this point in her writing. She's taking her own moral responsibility as a writer very seriously and thinking about the impact of her writing on her readers. So I think that symbol, if it doesn't work on Bradley, maybe it works on his creator. Mm. I think... It, it, these these are little jokes put in for people who are going to again going to recognize them i mean it's right on the, the second page of um celebration of love so this is on page 22 in the vintage edition or page two of the of, of bradley's um bradley's uh narrative a sunless and cozy womb my flat was with a highly wrought interior and no outside only from the front door of the house which was not my front door could one squint up at sky over tall buildings and see above the serene austere erection of the post office tower yeah. And that kind of combination of the womb and the erection so close together, of course, should make us laugh. But I think also, as you say, it's that kind of dualism between the interiority and exteriority of Bradley's thought and his action as we as we go through later on. So there's lots of signposting very early on in the novel, isn't there, towards what yeah. may well come up later on. Do you know there's not a there's not a wasted sentence? No, quite. Yeah. It is extraordinary in that sense. And I think as we kind of come towards the end of the podcast there's, a, there's quite a lot to, to a, a f well maybe not a lot but there's a, a few bits we want to tidy up and I want to I wanted to sort of bring you back to thinking about the structure of the novel a little bit could you say something funny on how we read those enigmatic postscripts and also the character of Loxius Loxius of course opens us opens up the opens up the novel as it were uh with his, um, yeah. his introduction and then of course we have these five postscripts afterwards from um, some of the major major players and they kind of get get it makes the novel even more of a, of a problem novel in a sense, or maybe even a novel of ideas because the postscripts particularly problematize how we might actually perceive the actual action of a celebration of love that Bradley has allegedly written. So maybe could you talk a little bit about that for, to, to finish us off? Well, I can try. <laughs> um, there's, there are six postscripts. Um, the first is written uh, in the voice of Bradley. We've talked about that and, and that, closes with this declaration of love for Ju Julian, which I think we're meant to to take, uh, to believe. Um, then there are four uh, that give a voice to each of the main characters who get the opportunity to put their, forward their version of events and pronounce judgment on who they think killed Arnold. Um, they all contradict each other. They all contest some aspects of Bradley's account of what happened. Um, all of them are a de deliberate intensification of the mystification within the novel. So I, th I think these postscripts are really the most demanding parts of the book. How should you read them? 
readers will have to be skilled. I think she hopes that her readers are now going to be skilled and well-informed enough about how they read this book to know who is being truthful and who is lying. She got exasperated, I think, by some critical interpretations of the novel. She says, I want the mystification to be something of a further intensification of the story, not a contradiction to it, but a kind of shadow hiding behind the story, which people could see if they could unveil it. Ah. Well, unveiling it is 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 the issue. I mean, you can go around in circles. Um, yeah. And and then a bit later on, she <laughs> it didn't work. That that clarification didn't work. She said later, Bradley Pearson narrates real events, even though he is of course only partly reliable. But he is reliable in the most important respect. The author does not intend us to imagine that he murdered his friend. So I think, you know, we can write Bradley off in terms of who killed Arlen, Arnold Baffin. She says he didn't do it. Um, so for the most part, I think at this stage and in his postscript, we, we, Bradley is telling the truth. He makes it clear that he was not the killer and he accuses Rachel uh, in his postscript. Mm. Now, there's justification for that because she had just found out that Christian was in France with Arnold. Uh, and he says the will that powered that hammer blow had been forged much earlier. But this book is full of red herrings. They're everywhere. Um, this could be a red herring because he knows, or at least he believes that Julian might be Arnold's killer. Now, we haven't got time to go into this, but this is what I talk about when I go to, to Sophie Hannah's class on crime writing, my idea that Julian is a suspect in the murder of Arnold's, uh, in, of Arnold's murder. So all this, you know, increasingly suggests that Murdoch is still playing here. The postscripts are still full of contradictions and innuendos. All the characters show themselves up as self-deceivers and liars. Uh, they may well, even some of them think they're telling the truth and they believe they're telling the truth, but in fact, they're far from it. Now, what's most interesting, I think, about these postscripts is that they all represent a different kind of storytelling. They all represent varying styles of artistic endeavor, art endeavor which should be judged along with the characters. So a couple of examples. Christian, she wants to convince everyone that it was she who Bradley loved. She believes Bradley killed Arnold. So we know we've got to distrust her. And then he forgot about it. He simply forgot he did it. Creatively, this is the kind of art that is cheap entertainment value. So that's being discounted. Francis makes a purely Freudian interpretation. Now, we've already said that a Freudian interpretation works to some extent in mm -hmm. this novel. But that's being ridiculed in Francis's postscript. He makes unequivocally, exclusively a Freudian reading, which is absolutely bizarre. Um, it can be useful and relevant, but it cannot be exhaustive in interpreting a literary text. Rachel, pure venom, she declares Bradley's story to be an absolute lie and suggests that he's insane. So this is a diminishment of any other point of view. And the reader knows that this is not to be true. So she represents the kind of art that simply transforms art into what an author wants it to be. Art is pure self-serving fantasy and a means to self-aggrandizement. Bad art of the most pernicious kind. 
Julian's postscript makes more sense if you look at it from the perspective of a woman who loathed her mother. Um, and it certainly is a woman who is concealing her own guilt or concealing some kind of truth. Uh, Loxia said, I leave the facts to her conscience. And if you read carefully, certainly Loxius points the finger covertly at Julian. What kind of art does Julian write bad art? She's a bad poet. She writes dreadful poetry. The artist who is concealing a dark secret and is afraid of the truth will never be a great poet. Art is secret, 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 um, Julian said. Words are for concealment. So there's a lovely... Um, rainbow effect at, at the end of the novel uh, where all these different kinds of characters are brought to task and all the different kinds of art that that that's you know is being explored here um is being undercut so i suppose to conclude then Anne, i mean the question that our readers are left with and we we constantly come back to is this one of you know why does it matter who killed arnold baffin or who killed arnold baffin um does it really matter for the reading? Obviously, there are various interpretations and conclusions that we can draw from this. But um, Murdoch leaves it open, doesn't she? Or it leaves leaves it a little bit um, uncertain. And I suppose that's also the message of the book, isn't it? About the uncertainty of life, perhaps. Yeah, and it is the task. You yeah. Know, the, the interrogation of the text, the attempt to try. Uh, and she builds the question, actually, into the narrative. Um Loxia says, I hear it has even been suggested that Bradley Pearson and myself are both simply fictions, the inventions of a minor novelist. Um, and Loxius, the god of art, Apollo, refutes this. It does matter. Mm. Fear will inspire any hypothesis. Here upon my desk as I write these words stand the bronze buffalo lady and the gilt snuff box inscribed a friend's gift. And Bradley Pearson's story, which I made him tell, remains too a kind of thing more durable than these. The art form itself is absolutely crucial to the well-being of society. So the process of trying to work out who killed Arnold Baffin is significant because the ability for art to point us towards the truth matters. And I think that's the key to the whole novel. Yeah, and That's why it's a lot more than a pastime to keep interrogating this book. And it's why it will never actually give us that 100% guarantee, because we might just take that rigorous search for truth back into our own life. Art is a dummy run for life, if you like. Art, says Loxius, art tells the only truth that ultimately, ultimately matters. It's the light by which human things can be mended. And after that, there is, let me assure you, all, nothing. That's the moral message, I think. Mm. All matters. And to kind of go full circle then, it's the book kind of refuting this idea of the death of the author and the rec recognition of the, 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 the central importance of the reader. It, it, Murdoch is saying, no, that the, the author is absolutely essential. Actually, what I what I believe what yeah, the creation matters, um, the, the creative yes, process. Yes. Yeah. And the author the author has certain rights, possibly, over the novel. She makes it as difficult as possible. There's no question of that. Mm. But it's the attempt. And, and 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 it's the demand on readers that you have to take this kind of rigorous attention to detail uh, back to the novel. You it every time I, I we're back where we started. Yeah. When I read this novel, every time I find some crucial 
little incident that will affect the way that I've been reading it. And it will go on. This is why this novel will, it will still, I don't think I've ever been to an Iris Murdoch conference where there hasn't been a paper on Iris Murdoch and where we all haven't sat down at some point in a seminar room discussing who killed Oh, and, and long may it last absolutely and um a, and a great place to finish thank you thank you so much for for coming on and, and, and sharing your years of experience of teaching it and i'm sure our listeners will go back to um go back to the novel with uh, lots more ideas um of um of what to look out for so thank you for pointing us to all those um those wonderful small details that perhaps on a first or second reading we might have missed so um those of you listening, if you don't have Anne's book, um, uh, most recent um, work um, entitled Iris Murdoch and the Writers and Their Work series, you can find a link to purchase that in the description box um, below the podcast. I do thoroughly recommend it, of course. Um, so my sincere thanks to Anne Rowe for coming on for this um, special edition, uh, thinking about the Black Prince on its 50th anniversary. And my thanks to you all for listening.